The following is a message by Dr. David Van Drunen from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. I'll be uh, reading and speaking this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read this uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let whom who, who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Though this is not an exceptionally long chapter in 1 Corinthians, uh, there is certainly a lot of important material here, and I suppose if you were uh, preaching this uh, in regular pastoral ministry in a congregation, uh, it is worth a full sermon, probably more than one full sermon, to deal with uh, the many important issues that are at work here. Well, our time is very limited this morning, and so... uh, certainly cannot look at all of the things going on here. And so what I would like to focus upon in thinking uh, for a few minutes about 1 Corinthians 5 is about the Gospel of Matthew. I would like to reflect upon 1 Corinthians 5 in the light of some very important things going on, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, in the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem a little strange if we really are pressed for time that we would spend time thinking about the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, But I quite recently spent some time thinking, trying to think hard about uh, the Gospel of Matthew, some issues in regard to the kingdom of heaven as it is taught there. And I do believe that 1 Corinthians 5 is much illuminated uh, if we consider what Paul is saying here in the light of some very important things that our Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, said and taught. 
Now, if we look back at the Gospel of Matthew for a few minutes, and we consider the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven, uh, which the Lord Jesus Christ uh, does make uh, in that gospel, one of the things that is very striking about the way of life of his kingdom that he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew 5 through 7, is that his kingdom is a kingdom in which there is no retributive justice. It is a kingdom, as he, uh, Jesus explains in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, in which one is not to enforce the rule, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus explains that if uh, you are having a conflict with your brother, what you're to do is not to go to court to seek retributive justice, uh, but you are to go and to seek reconciliation. You're to drop what you're doing, and before you go to make your offering, to be reconciled. At the end of Matthew 5, Jesus explains uh, that uh, we are to love our enemies. You heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That wasn't explicitly said in the Old Testament, but it was implicitly said all over the place. For the Israelites were told that they were to wage carom warfare against those uh, who were pagans in their land. And so Jesus talks about the life of his kingdom. And it is a kingdom in which retributive justice is not to be sought. And that's an interesting kind of kingdom when you think about it. It's a different kingdom from the kingdoms of the ancient Near East. You can look at the Code of Hammurabi and find eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle set forth. It's different from the Roman law, which they would have been exposed to. You can look at the Twelve Tables, the first extant um, uh, statement of Roman law that we have. And it sets forth a principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And of course, this is simply a reflection, it seems, of Genesis 9 and the covenant with Noah, where justice was to be done on the principle of blood for blood. And of course, it's even different from the Mosaic Law. Three times in the Mosaic Law, the people are commanded to seek justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, to show no mercy, they are told. So what kind of kingdom is this? that Jesus is proclaiming, in which there is no retributive justice. They are not to seek it when they have conflicts with another. Well, one of the things that becomes very clear in the Gospel of Matthew, that this is a heavenly kingdom. I think there's no reason to think that the kingdom of heaven in Matthew is any different from the kingdom of God in Mark or Luke. But it is interesting, it is noteworthy that Matthew uses that terminology, uh, not invariably, but most of the time. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom whose origin and nature is heavenly. And yet what is also clear in Matthew is that this heavenly kingdom is to be lived here and now. It is to be put into practice in our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount and not think that that is the case. And so the question arises then, where do we see this kingdom lived How is it to be lived? Where is it to be lived? This kingdom that looks so different, apparently, from the kingdoms of this world. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, we seem to get a very important part of the answer. For in Matthew 16, and thinking particularly of verses 18 and 19, immediately after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, 
Jesus points his disciples to the church, the church that he will establish, a church to which he will entrust the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Where is the kingdom going to be administered? Where is it going to be lived? Where is the power of this kingdom and and its new life going to be expressed? In the church. In the church, that which which has already been bound in heaven will be bound in earth. That which has already been loosed in heaven will be loosed on earth. Things get even more interesting in Matthew chapter 18. Thinking here especially of verses 15 through 20. You may know that the only times in all four Gospels in which the word church occurs are in Matthew 16 and 18. In Matthew 18, in verses 15 through 20, Jesus repeats what he had said earlier in chapter 16 in regard to that which is bound on earth having been already bound in heaven and loosed on earth as has already been loosed in heaven But what is also very significant here in Matthew 18 is that as Jesus talks about the church that he is going to establish, that he sets forth these procedures for discipline that we are surely all familiar with. If your brother sins against you, first go to him privately. Then take one or two with you if he does not listen. And then tell it to the church. And the church takes up this matter and deals uh, with this person. If he does not listen even to the church, he should be considered a Gentile and a tax collector. Here are the basic procedures for discipline as they are to be done in Jesus' church. And what I would want to remind you of here is how much these procedures for discipline reflect the Sermon on the Mount and the way of life that Jesus sets forth as he distinguishes his kingdom from the kingdoms of this world, even including the Mosaic kingdom. For if we consider the discipline that is set forth in Matthew 18, we note, for example, that the emphasis is upon mercy and restoration. When you come into conflict with your brother, it is not retributive justice that you are going to seek in the kingdom of Christ, but restoration, mercy, forgiveness. That is what you are to seek. That is how it is in Matthew 18. The goal is restoration. The goal is repentance and forgiveness. We also note, of course, that Jesus does not entrust to his church a sword to enforce its discipline. It is the spoken word, the word ministered to the sinner, that is the only weapon that Jesus gives to his church as it does its discipline. Discipline will be necessary in the church, Jesus makes clear. But it is a discipline that is suffused and permeated with mercy, reconciliation, restoration. I would note for you that in Matthew 18, this section on discipline in verses 15 through 20 is sandwiched between two parables. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the unforgiving servant. Parables that emphasize the mercy of God in going after wandering sheep. Parables that emphasize the forgiveness that we must show to one another in reflection of the forgiveness that has been granted to us in Christ. Discipline is necessary in the church, but it is done in the spirit of mercy and restoration. Well, now I want to come back to 1 Corinthians 
5, now that it is 16 minutes after 10. Paul is addressing a church here that has its share of problems. In verse 1, Paul brings to their attention this sin, a sin that is rather shocking, a sin that is offensive even to pagans, almost unbelievable that this would be occurring in the church and not have been dealt with by the church. And of course, as many of you go out and serve as pastors and elders, you'll find out that there are many shocking things that are occurring even in the most seemingly well-functioning and healthy churches. There are terrible things going on in the Corinthian church. And discipline must be implemented. It must be dealt with, as Paul emphasizes here. Now, Paul here seems to go immediately to the last step of Matthew 18. Presumably, private confrontation has already occurred with this person who has been committing this grave sin. And so, note how Paul, how Paul's commands reflect that discipline set forth in Matthew 18, which in turn reflects the attitude and the lifestyle of the Sermon on the Mount proclaimed in Jesus' kingdom. Note that just as Christ has commanded that the church, the church as a whole, should exercise this discipline and pronounce the verdict. So it is that Paul says in chapter 5, verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is with you, it is the gathered church that is to do this work. And I would note for you, just as a side note, one of the things that the Reformed tradition has insisted upon, over against many through history, who wanted to turn church discipline over to the state, Reformed insisted that the church is responsible for its own discipline. No one else can do it. The state, I hope, has already been clear, and I want to enforce it again in a moment. The state doesn't know how to do discipline the way the church is to do discipline. The church cannot hand over its discipline to anyone else. The gathered church must take up its responsibility. And note also, In 1 Corinthians 5, as in Matthew 18, there is no sword. There is no sword that is given to the church to enforce its purity, to enforce uh, its morality, to enforce its way of life. It is, again, the spoken word. The church meeting and proclaiming its verdict. There is where the power lies by uh, by the authority of Christ. But most importantly here, note that in 1 Corinthians 5, As in Matthew 18, the discipline here is a discipline permeated with mercy and with the goal of reconciliation and restoration. Note the sorts of things that Paul says. For example, in verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the goal The goal is not to pay him back. The goal is not to even out the scales of justice. To even out that which has been put into imbalance because of a travesty in justice. You see, Paul is not against retributive justice. And if you want proof of that, just turn back a few pages to Romans 13 where Paul talks about the state instituted by God, entrusted with the sword, with the task 
of paying back, of exercising wrath against the wrongdoer. Paul's not against retributive justice. It must still be done, and the state must do it and enforce it with a sword. But this is not what Paul thinks church discipline is about. This is not what Jesus said church discipline is about. No, we are not trying to bring the scales back into balance. We are trying to bring restoration and mercy and forgiveness. Note what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, the state is on its ongoing quest for purity of some sort, by doing justice, by paying back wrong for wrong, with this continual quest to try to even out what has been thrown off kilter. But that is not what the church does. In the church, in the kingdom of heaven, the scales have been balanced once and for all. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection, has satisfied justice. There is no more sin left to be paid. There is no more evil left to be avenged. There is no more eye left to be repaid for an eye that was taken. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It is done. And so the church seeks not to make up for justice that has been left unaccomplished, unaccounted for by Christ, but seeks to live out of the reality of that purity, that holiness, that justice that has already been brought in by our Lord Jesus Christ in his one sacrifice for us as that eschatological Passover lamb. We are to live in accord with that purity already bestowed upon us, and we are to exhort others along such lines. A brief note on the last verses of 1 Corinthians 5. Note that as Paul warns them against associating with these immoral people, he goes out of his way to emphasize that he's not talking about this as a general life principle. He's not saying that when you go into the marketplace that you can't associate with such people. He's not saying that when you go to a restaurant you can't eat with such people. This is not saying that you can't talk to your unbelieving neighbor. But what he is saying is that those who consider themselves brothers, who would be part of the fellowship of the church, this is church discipline. This is not worldly discipline. Paul says otherwise you'd have to leave the world. And of course what Paul is saying implicitly is, of course I'm not telling you you have to leave the world. That's not what you are called to do. This is the discipline of the church that reflects the kingdom of heaven that is built upon the saving work of Christ something that the world as a whole does not know. Finally, as we read such things, we may wonder about the effectiveness of it all. It seems, from a human standpoint, much more effective when someone has committed a great wrong to pull out the sword, to pay back eye for eye, to even accounts. We may wonder of the effectiveness of these disciplinary procedures, of thinking that someone might be restored when we put them out of our fellowship. But of course there is, it seems, a happy ending to the story. For if we read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we find that Paul is reminding these Corinthians that when someone repents, 
when someone turns from their ways, that they are to forgive, that it is over. When a criminal commits a terrible crime and is given a 20-year sentence, he may apologize. He may repent very sincerely, but he doesn't get out of jail early. But you see, in the church of Jesus Christ, when a sinner repents, when a sinner turns from his ways, he is forgiven. He is restored. He is a member of the church once again. He has no record. He has no felony that will stay with him for years and years and years. No, Paul counsels that we are to restore. We are to forgive as Christ has once and for all forgiven us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the kingdom that he has proclaimed. We thank you that he has won that kingdom for himself at the price of his own blood. We thank you that he has righted our account, that he has satisfied justice, that he has silenced the sentence of the law. And we thank you for the privilege that we have as your church to live in the light of those great realities. O Lord, may we be eager and zealous to live as a pure community, as those who love the ways of holiness and godliness and righteousness. And may we be zealous, may we be zealous to deal with those sins that are in our midst. And yet, Father, we pray that you would give us that spirit of mercy and forgiveness. May we rejoice not in restoring balances, as in seeing sinners repent, in restoring those who are broken, in reconciling those who were for a time our enemies. Father, we thank you that our Passover lamb has been slaughtered, and we pray, indeed, that we may reflect that love towards others that you have shown to us in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.